Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, North Street. I'm good everybody. This is Eagle Eyes on Tech. I am Eagle Falcon. This is kind of a weird week for me. I'm not gonna lie. Primarily because I'm gonna let you a little bit into my personal life. Just just a little bit, just a peek, just so you know the background to how today started. Alright? My day starts with catching up on a text message chain from my family. And I'm not going to go into too much detail, but basically my stepmother last night went into the hospital, into the ER... And only this morning I found she's going into sur- surgery. I'm not going to say specifically what, what the procedure is going to be, or anything like that, you know. But I, I just want to get that off my chest, so you know where I'm coming from. To for today, all right. Just, just, just so you know, if things seem off. The other thing that's also going to seem really weird is, for some reason, my brain is still in the mode of, there's so much to do in so little time. Because I now have had two weeks in a row where I had major events on the weekend. Two weeks ago, it was Twitch Chicago, so a lot of stuff was rushed. And then, worse yet, was Anime Milwaukee just last week where I had to record the podcast on Thursday and also prepare a whole bunch of content for you, the viewers, all throughout the time that I was quote-unquote off. And on one hand, you feel the urge to just relax and just sit back and ease up. And at the other time, you still have a whole bunch of footage you need to go through Which, oddly enough, I still can't figure out how to get off my phone. I'm not even kidding. I have, like, 30 gigs of pictures, videos, and footage from the convention that I can't get off my phone. I can use the movie editor on my phone and edit it that way and then export it, but... I don't want to, (laughs) like at all, because I want to get, I want to use the tools that are on my main desktop. So there's been a lot going on in the background, to say the least, alright? And then on top of that, I have countless, underlying countless emails Asking me to get involved with the whole school shooting thing. Which, I have zero desire to do so. This is a tech podcast. I don't want to get political on here if I can avoid it. Plus, there's no tech angle to the story. I could rant about it, but I don't want to. There's no need to. 
What I can rant about, though, is the fact that I still cannot see the logic behind YouTube's monetization policy. The fact that tens and hundreds of thousands of YouTube accounts that used to be able to monetize cannot, mine included. And now whatever money we barely scrounge together in ad revenue is locked away for seemingly ever. And the thing that actually has me the most ticked off about the YouTube monetization policy is the argument that, well, if you had less than a thousand subscribers, you weren't going to make money anyway. (laughs) And on one hand, the comment is true. YouTube's algorithm hates you if you're small if you're a small channel. That part is absolutely true. I can attest to that. To which I reply with so What's the harm? It's not like you need to ease up on resources unless you announce some silly ridiculous policy of having a robot go through and hilariously false flag I apologize for my phone going off that was completely unintended and now the problem's been solved alright it's not like you have a robot going through and falsely flagging a whole bunch of videos and need to spend manpower manually reviewing them to find out oh It's just footage of a silly video game. And that's actually what I think this all boils down to. And I think in the end, this actually hurts YouTube more than anything. Because let's think about it for a minute. Any videos, including this podcast now on YouTube is not monetized. Which, not gonna lie, not really a whole lot of incentive for me to give my content to YouTube. In fact, don't be surprised at all if this podcast stops airing on YouTube. If that is the case, I still haven't made a decision yet. You can always find it at at eagleeyes.tech. But... Here's something that's interesting. The interesting thing that I only recently found out about... Actually, no. Before I even get onto the story. Back to the whole point about what's the harm to YouTube. It's not like monetizing small videos doesn't earn YouTube money. In fact, it actually earns them more. Because here's the thing. As a small channel, you cannot withdraw your ad revenue until you break $100. That is the minimum payout for YouTube. All right? 
currently I have forty dollars in you in earned YouTube ad revenue. That will, as of right now, never grow any larger. Ever. It simply will not. Because as of now, my YouTube channel has been fully demonetized. Because I do not have 1,000 followers. I only have just shy of 200. And I do not have 4,000 minutes watched. I only have 1,000. So, that means that that's money, granted not a whole lot, but still, you know, it's it's a decent amount that I'm never going to see, and that YouTube gets to hold on to, basically indefinitely. They can hold on to that, invest however they wish, all they have to do is just make sure that there's $40 in there. And in fact, really, if they're careful about it, they only have to make sure about that. They could just invest the whole $40 however they choose. Now, let's let's cut that amount in half, because I'm probably the exception just because I upload long videos. I mean, this podcast is usually about an hour Plus all the streams I upload, which are anywhere between three, four, five hours. So, you know, I put up long videos. The more watch time there is, the more ad revenue there is, etc., etc., etc. So, let's cut that in half. Let's say $20 times the 100,000 accounts that are now demonetized. Alright, that's rough math, alright? That's really, really rough, but let's even go even for it. Let's just say 10 by the 200,000. You're talking over a million dollars of revenue that is now locked. That's kind of a dick move, no matter how you look at it. And all it does in the grand scheme of things is ensure that that amount of money is locked. They can, YouTube can now just spend it however they wish, assuming that none of these accounts ever reach the 1,000 subscriber threshold. Which then leads to other ways around it. Now, of course, a content creator like myself can always just go to a different platform. Most of my content was originally on Twitch, which doesn't have such ridiculous monetization policies that YouTube has just implemented. And in fact, I have a lot more followers on Twitch than I do on YouTube. By about, you know, a multiple of ten... But there are some other ways that are getting a bit more creative. This article comes from The Daily Dot. The article is entitled, This Web Browser is the Answer to YouTube's New Monetization Policy? Question mark? 
And here's what it is. I'm going to go straight from the article, again, from the Daily Dot. As reported by Polygon, so they originally got from Polygon, YouTube YouTubers are beginning to flock to Brave, an open-source browser that blocks ads and allows users to decide for themselves who gets paid what. Let me interject. That sentence alone... That sentence alone is horrifying to almost every content creator there is that isn't reliant on another platform. Just think that think about that for a minute. Any ads that you as the content creator put on your site blocked Gone. You now make zero sense for that viewer reading your content. Now that's one of the big problems with ad blockers in general on Chrome, Firefox, or whatnot. But that's the base function of this browser. Of course this continues though. That's accomplished with Brave Payments, which lets users anonymously contribute money to their favorite content producers while not having to worry about avoiding or outright blocking the ads that that allow YouTubers to get paid normally. In November, Brave announced on its blog that users could donate basic authentication... I'm sorry, basic attention tokens, or BAT for short, to fund their favorite YouTube personalities. YouTube viewers can either distribute contributions based on time they spend viewing the material or by pinning a set amount of of a particular channel, Brave said in a blog post. The Brave browser provides an ad-free YouTube video experience. It also enables a direct monetization relationship between the content creator and their audience. Compensation for YouTube's creators no longer need to be based on vague rules or mercurial algorithms as users can decide who to compensate. This new ability will especially benefit YouTube creators who have under 10,000 lifetime views as they do not receive ad revenue from YouTube. So, right away this sounds good and weird at the same time. Alright? Because one of the things that content creators usually get their revenue from is, in fact, advertisements, alright? Whereas you, the viewer, watch for free, don't have to contribute anything, and then get the content. And then the revenue generated from you, the viewer, watching that ad is then given to the content creator, which is also split with the platform. That's how things have worked. With this system, it's not exactly clear, at least in this article, how how the revenue is generated. 
Is it through advertisement as well? Do you watch ads and gain bats that way? Or do you just shell money out outright to get bats? Does it work very similar to Cheers? None of this is really clear. I mean, is it basically just like the way Twitch streamers get their revenue, which is through people subscribing to their channel for five bucks and the revenue split 50-50, or, you know, as Unjust Man just said in the chat, that you pay for Amazon Prime and get a free sub that way, and by subbing with that, you give a little bit of revenue to 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 the content creator? Is it like bits where you just buy a hundred bits for a buck forty and then distribute the, those hundred bits among the content creator at the various content creators as you choose, and they get one cent per bit? Admittedly, I'm not sure. This is one of those things where I wish I was able to do more digging into this browser. Unfortunately, this is something I only found literally earlier this morning. So next week, I'm going to have more information about this as I dig through and figure out exactly what the heck is going on. I'd go on with the article, but I mean... The rest of it doesn't really say other than Oh actually no, here we go. We actually have a page here. What the what the what the Braves user user online wallet could look like as they contribute. So it shows a monthly budget of saying twenty five bats or three dollars and sixty three three dollars and sixty three cents. Well your current account balance it is and okay, so it looks like it just works exactly like bits. You just pay too brave and you get bats that you distribute to content creators. I guess. In addition, Brave is also giving away 1 million in BAT if you if YouTubers convince their followers to download the browser content creator the browser content creators will receive $5 in tokens for each person they successfully refer. Brave received a big boost in recognition last month when YouTube YouTube star Phil Phil DeFranco tweeted this after YouTube announced its monetization policy. Etc, etc, etc. So It's an interesting concept to say the least. But I have to do more digging. This literally, like, popped into my Twitter feed this morning. Or was it late last night? Regardless. There's still definitely more digging to do before I can go and recommend anything like this. However, in the end, there is still kind of one little bit of interestingness to this. Think about this. 
the exact order everything went down. YouTube goes and demonetizes a bunch of videos via a bot in response to a couple of YouTubers doing stupid things while vlogging. And then basically starts trying to force censorship without actually censoring by hitting content creators in the wallet. It's not technically censorship, but it's definitely a way to try and create censorship. However, by then being forced to use resources to correct the errors that their bots did... They then changed their monetization policy to give them a disadvantage compared to their primary competitor for live content, at least, Twitch. In the answer to this, thousands upon thousands of small YouTuber channels complain, which then brings on the birth of this odd, strange browser. So, well, I'm not sure what the lesson is here, other than probably should think things through if you're YouTube before doing things like this. Because this, how much revenue is YouTube getting if Brave catches on? Zero. Nada. Zip zero. YouTube gets no revenue, which from the ads on demonetized channels, where they would get 100% of the revenue. And YouTube gets 0% of the revenue through Brave. Oops. Let's move on, though. Let's move on to the next generation of Ryzen CPUs, the Epic Rome processor. Now, a little bit of background. For those who don't know, AMD for the longest time had... No processor that could hold a candle to its competitor, Intel. Alright? Intel basically was the only one who had processors. AMD had some, but you'd only find them in the super cheap products. But even then, the cost ratio was still terrible. For about 10 years, AMD lost on the power war and therefore had to just slimp down to the cheap market. And actually for about 3 years, until the dawn of Zen, AMD was still losing out on the price per, per, 
for performance area. Their processors are actually becoming more expensive than Intel's as they tried to help help other financial problems they had internally. Then Zen came out, or Ryzen as it's known. A brand new architecture that dug AMD out of the processor hole that they were trapped in for 10 years, for an entire decade. Ryzen pulled them out. So what's Rome then? Rome is the next generation of the Epic processor. Epic is the enthusiast level of Ryzen. Ryzen is intended for the mainstream. Epic is intended for the power-hungry computer enthusiasts. Normally, you'd only see Epic in, like, say... Oh, I don't know. Some sort of crazy workstation. Or someone who wanted to, on the same computer, play three different games and stream it all at the same time. The Epic processors hold a ridiculous amount of processing power. More than any human being would ever need for the longest time. And Rome is going to kick it up a notch. By, first off, A... Having the nanometer technology skip the 10 nanometer barrier and going all the way down to 7 nanometers. 7 nanometers. That's insane. Especially since the theoretical limit of how small processors could get was 10 nanometers. That is the theoretical barrier. And Intel has been flirting closer and closer and closer with a 10 nanometer barrier. I think right now Intel is on, is on uh, 12 nanometer, hoping their next one's going to hit 10. AMD thinks they're just going to shatter the 10 nanometer barrier and go straight to 7. According to these rumors, of course. This is all rumors, by the way. The next is having 64 cores on one processor. So that means on a dual core on a dual processor system, you're talking 128 cores with 256 threads. Wow. Unjust Man points out in the chat that that, uh, 10 nanometers is not a barrier. For the longest time it has been. Now, granted... There has not been a whole lot of solid news saying that the 10 nanometer barrier has been broken. If a lab has broken the 10 nanometer barrier, they are, they haven't been talking about it. I'm sure it is possible to break the 10 nanometer barrier. 
but there hasn't been news of it. At least none that I've seen. If there has, it's been on small sites, and it's, in this day and age, very hard to trust small sites. In any case. I mean, yeah. I mean, eventually, the 10 nanometer barrier is going to be broken. And, by the sound of it, AMD thinks they're going to do it soon. Or at least some crazy nut job with a tinfoil hat that talked to uh, WCCF Tech, which has been pretty solid on these rumors in the past, thinks that they can. But I mean, every tech barrier eventually is broken. I mean, hell, how long has there been a 4 gigabyte of RAM barrier? That wasn't all that long ago that that was a huge barrier. Not only from a technology standpoint of getting that much RAM onto a stick so you could even fit that much into a computer, but also on the operating side. You had to, ju- you had to actually make a working 64-bit operating system. I mean, that feels like ancient history now, but that was only 13 years ago. Or was it 14 years ago? The point is, is that barriers always get broken. But here's the thing. Here's where I'm really going with this. Do you remember exactly what happened when Epic first came out? After Ryzen launched to compete with the mainstream Core i5s and Core i7s, soon after Epic came out, and afterwards, about a month later, Intel was forced to launch an even more powerful version of the Xeon processor, which is what they use in servers, and also their enthusiast line, including making the legendary Core i9 a reality. Which I can't remember off the top of my head how many cores the Core i9 has. I want to say 18? Or something insane like that? The next generation of Ryzen is hoping to pack 64 cores. To a gamer, that doesn't mean a whole lot. To a multitasker? To professional applications? To the YouTubers and content creators for Twitch that we were just talking about in the last story. More cores is better. And in fact, a setup like mine currently, which uses two computers, you had 64 cores on one one CPU, you wouldn't need two computers. You'd be happy as a clam on one. And there's nothing that could happen to, to justify using two. So with that, we're going to move on to... Well, these are 
I guess I should start from the beginning of this story then. One of the things I'm working on for Eagle Eyes on Tech right now is an investigation into how the sales reps behave for from the major manufacturers to see if their recommendations are how close they are to the actual needs of a unique application. Basically, I'm going to Dell, HP, Acer, all of them, Lenovo. I guess I could go to Apple too. That'd actually be very entertaining to see how see how Apple would do it. <laughs> That'd be adorable. And go up to them and say, I'm a Twitch streamer and I'm looking for a new computer that is only going to be used for streaming. Not actually playing the games, just to stream. And see what they recommend and how close it is to the actual requirements. Now, of course, to do this, I need to first do my research, familiarize myself with their current lineup of computers so that I can pick, from my knowledge, what is the best option. And by best option, I also am including cost, because you do want... You want the most computer that's going to get the job done, and you want to pay the least amount possible. And while I was doing my research, I realized a couple of things. Did you know that Dell released two new gaming desktops? I didn't. This literally launched silently. I don't even know when this happened. This flew so far under the radar, it's not even funny. The Inspiron gaming desktop. The blasted thing doesn't even have a number. That's a new design. I've never seen this design before on a Dell. It's kind of a strange, smooth, Apple-esque sort of aluminum-magnesium alloy with a diagonal grille on the front in almost the shape of a triangle, which then on one side consumes half of the case to then let you see into this computer to see that there is a water-cooling loop and built-in LEDs as though it were a hand-built computer. When did this launch? And how did nobody talk about it? And the only answer I can give is... Either A, Dell cared so little they just announced it on the site and didn't tell anyone, or B... They made such a stink about it, and all of tech media cared so little that not one of them talked about it. Not one! So, is it good? That's the key thing, right? 
Well, there's two versions of this thing. You have the Dell Inspire on 5680. Wait a minute, there are numbers? I don't see any numbers on the website. But yeah, not even kidding. These computers actually have model numbers. We have the Inspire on 5680VR Ready Gaming Desktop, or the Inspire on 5675VR Gaming P- Gaming Desktop PC. And they're only viewable from the computer tab. In the browser tab, the actual page itself just says Inspire on Gaming Desktop. And I apologize to everyone who is watching the live version right now and seeing my screen flash, because every time I bring my mouse up, it enables this menu system and makes the screen go dim for a fraction of a second. If I'm not careful, it'd be an epilepsy warning. I think I'm getting a seizure right now just from it, which, by the way, by the way, Del, please stop that. Please. I don't even think it was on the actual desktop page. It's kind of bizarre that way. Yeah, it just says Inspire on Gaming Desktop, starting at 600 bucks. So anyway, you have the Intel version here, which starts with an i3-8100... Which, if you quickly do a little bit of research, you will find that that is a quad-core part, 3.6 gigahertz each core. With no boost clock. But, let's be honest, 3.6 gigahertz quad-core? That ain't bad. That honestly isn't too bad. 8 gigs of RAM? Okay, you could use a little bit more there. 1 terabyte hard drive, no SSD? Well... What are you going to do? But I mean, it's already got liquid cooling already in it. That's standard. So unless it's disabled internally, you've got liquid cooling in in there and you can overclock this sucker. And what's actually made even better is that you just go one step up, which is the exact same price. No, really, it's supposed to be 800 bucks, but currently the next step up is on sale for the exact same price as the baseline, getting you an i5-8400, which is a 6-core part, 4 gigahertz, <laughs> when turbo-boosted. Which then, of course, means you got to go and look it up, and it's actually a base, co- base clock speed of 2.8 gigahertz. And yeah, this is based on Coffee Lake, the processors that just came out. So we're already starting to see our Coffee Lake parts. And all of these are loaded with a GTX 1060. Which, you know, you can game on that pretty well. It's not going to be top tier, but of course they're going to save the top tier stuff for the Alienwares. So I mean, that's not half bad, but can we do better? Well, if you're really desperate, they have the same thing on a on an AMD part. And for whatever reason, the AMD version of this, which is the 5675, actually has a clear see-through window, whereas the other one has a grate you have to look through. Why? Nobody knows. 
It's just there now. But if you look down below, the window's gone. Yeah, I don't get it either. But here's where things get very weird. Although, actually, before I make this declaration, let's do the smart thing. Let's look up the part. The baseline of this contains a A10-9700 APU. Which is the first thing you wonder, okay... Is this the old Ryzen? Is this the old? Is this the old AMD CPU, or is this Ryzen based? And the problem that you find is that it's not. Its internal code name is Bristol Ridge, which that doesn't help at all. That's not. I don't think that's the Ryzen. code name in fact this sounds like the old ones in fact only by doing additional research and looking this up can you find one article probably more but this is the first one I found that you still that you see we're still waiting for new Zen cores products like Ryzen on their way down in the form of the Raven Ridge family so Bristol Ridge, you can deduce, is the previous generation. So already the $600 version of this gaming PC should not be touched with a 10-foot pole, despite the fact that Dell puts it at 4 out of 5 bars. Forget that noise, get rid of this thing! You don't want anything from the ancient era before time from AMD. That's when they were terrible. Next version up, you find that you that has a Ryzen 5 1400. Well, there you go. There you're rocking. There you're rocking four six cores. In this case, four cores, 3.4 gigahertz each core when boosted. For 650, that ain't too bad. The only downside is that you're stuck with a with a Radeon RX 560, which is it, it's it's not that good, honestly. But still, that could be a decent desktop for just getting the job done for streaming. Do some basic stuff with it. It still just baffles me. This was silent. Actually, you know what's even more shocking? The fact that somehow Alienware, which is a product of Dell, also did a recent refresh. I don't know how recently, though, because this is last-gen's processors that actually fixed one of the biggest problems their laptop line had. So, here's how things went with their laptop line. They had a 13-inch, a 15-inch, and a 17-inch. Alright? The 13-inch, the, the lowest end, ran a low-end, ultra-low voltage processor a decent graphic card. But who cares because ultra low voltage processor. That means you had a one point who gives a crud gigahertz dual core chip trying to game and it just crying and begging for the sweet release of death. Trying to, 
I mean, can you imagine trying to make a 12-watt processor tr- try to run Witcher 3? I hope you enjoy watching a slideshow of a game, because you're going to get this game at about 8 frames per second. That was the worst thing about the Alienware 13. And then the 15, that got a full-size laptop processor. That got the good quad-core chips. And that could also get all the way up to a, to a GTX 1080. And that thing was rocking. The 17-inch then was basically a fit was basically the 15 inch with a slightly bigger screen that's it the same guts and everything the only thing that was different was was that they allowed you to overclock the pro- the processor from the factory which why would you do that do it yourself and be happy about it forever So why did I go over this rant? Because they fixed the 13-inch. No, really, at some point, who knows when this happened, this launched, again, silently, slid completely under the radar. The 13-inches are rocking full-size quad-core processors, Core i5s and Core i7s. In a 13-inch. The one big flaw they had. Fixed. Like that. Just all of a sudden deciding, you know, maybe a 12-watt maybe a processor was a bad idea in a performance laptop. Yeah, you think? So yeah, now there actually is officially a 13-inch small portable gaming laptop that can be rocking... A 7700HQ processor, which is, oh, what? What's our clock speed? Oh, 3.8 gigahertz after boost? Sure is a lot better than 1.6. Huh. On top of that, rocking a GTX 1060. Okay, that's not really the best graphic card you can in the world. But on a 13-inch... That's amazing. For you know, for a 13-inch little laptop, that ain't bad. And honestly, for that price point, it's not the worst in the world, although it's hard to convince anyone to shell out $1400 for a laptop. But I mean, you compare that to most of the laptops with that kind of horsepower in it going close to $1,600, $1,700, it's honestly not bad. Heck, even even just over 1000 for the Core i5 and the GTX uh, 1050 Ti, that's still not bad. Though I'd try to bump up to the next up. And I just want to clarify, I'm not sponsored by Dell. I wish I was, though. This is just as I'm doing research for a different project completely, I stumble onto this. That apparently, Dell either 
announced and no one cared, falling under the syndrome of if a tree falls in the woods and no one hears it, does it make a sound syndrome? Or they just didn't try in the first place. Unjust in the chat chat says 1060 will run almost anything at ultra settings. That's my point. For a little 13-inch laptop to pack that much power is kind of crazy. And I mean that in a good way. But anyway, let's get to the last burb, shall we? The last story of the day. I'd say so far 2018 has been the year of the chip flaws. Spectre and Meltdown being discovered close to the end of 2017. It's pretty much a big issue now, right? This huge vulnerability exists that allows data to be stolen off a computer without anyone knowing. It's kind of a big deal, right? Well, sometimes these vulnerabilities can lead to interesting side effects. For example, there's a flaw in the NVIDIA Tegra X1 chip, which is currently in the Nintendo Switch, that um, you can bypass certain lost locked aspects on the UEFI. And, uh, <laughs> can do other sorts of crazy things, such as, oh, I don't know, install any version of Linux you want on a Nintendo Switch. Yeah, I'm not kidding. Because of this flaw in the, in the Tegra X1... If you are skilled enough to utilize this exploit, you can install Linux onto a Nintendo Switch. Now, granted, nobody knows right now how well it would work. Currently, there are plenty of people with more time on their hands than I do are currently working on getting a version of Linux that would work perfectly on the Switch. I mean, I guess right now you could just get Ubuntu on it that's designed for tablets and just work that way and have the controllers be there for nothing. And then figure out how to utilize that Wi-Fi and whatnot. Unjust man in the chat asked, but will it run Doom? Why wouldn't it be able to run Doom? There's no reason it wouldn't be able to. Now, nobody knows that this will be as big as installing Linux on the PS3. Granted, when that became known that you could install Linux on the PlayStation 3... 
that was more considered a feature than, hey, look, we found a chip exploit and we can bypass Nintendo's intended design and install Linux. Who knows how much of a following <laughs> Linux on the Switch will be. I don't think anyone truly, truly knows just yet. But that's going to do it for me, guys. Thank you so much for listening to, to the podcast today. Feel f- um, words. I'm not actually streaming right now. <laughs> I almost gave the wrong out- outro. If you have any questions, please email me at eaglefalcontech at gmail.com. And I look forward to, t- to seeing you guys next week. Take care, rest well, and I hope you have a good day.